big day today, Dominic. Oh, really? I've just sent off my application to become a French citizen. Whoa, that's big news. Yeah. Congratulations, Katie. How did it feel? Exciting. Like more emotional than I thought it would be, actually. Probably because I was like bursting with pride at actually managing to find every document that they asked for. And I am very satisfied with the completeness of my dossier, which, as French listeners will know, um, having a complete dossier is like synonymous with being a good French person. So, yeah, I hope it's enough. Uh, the next big step is to start cramming for the interview next year and, and like memorising all the names of um, French rivers and stuff. You have to remember French rivers. Yeah, it's a bit like the British one in that they can ask you sort of random history facts, mm. but also why do you want to be French, etc. I would be so bad at that in Britain. What rivers specifically? I don't know any of the rivers. <laughs> you should take your passport away from you. Um, but I hear you also had a big day. Why? Because I went for a run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bought some running shoes. My first ever pair of proper running shoes. And actually, they make a difference. I'm very excited for you. They were ridiculously expensive. But I was conned into buying them by the man in the running shop who told me the shoes that I had come in with were not appropriate. He said, you must be a very good athlete if you've been running in these. God, now I think back at it, it's just his line, isn't it? I yeah, but for it. you're happy with the shoes. I am happy with the shoes. I've not been so happy about the European Union this week, though. What with Hungary and Poland uh, talking about vetoing the big budget and corona financial support package uh, because they don't like the new rule of law rules. It feels quite existential. It does feel quite existential. It does seem to be sort of ballooning into a conversation about like, what is this thing? What does it stand for? And does it work? And does it work? I read quite a convincing opinion piece by this guy, Roger Daniel Kaleman uh, in Politico, which made me feel a little bit better about it all because he had like some potential roots out of this. And he suggested that Hungary and Poland are overplaying a weak hand. That made me feel a little bit more confident that there is a way out of this. And I think we should put a link to it in the show notes mm. uh, this week, just in case anyone else happens to be interested in it. Because we're not actually talking about that this week. We've had uh, enough rule of law. We have. We've talked about it. We'll, Apparently. We'll come back to it many times. Don't you worry. Um, it's not going away. But we thought you all deserved, well, firstly, quite a light good week, bad week. And then we're going to be talking about Moldova. Moldova elected its first ever female president, Maya Sandu, last week. It was seen as very good news by much of the West as she is pro-EU, she's a reformist and she wants to flush out corruption in Moldova, a country which holds the pretty sad honour of being the poorest country in Europe. We often speak to journalists when elections have happened to like get an overview of what's happened. But this time we decided we actually wanted to speak to a normal Moldovan citizen, uh, someone who knows what's going on on the ground and that can give us a snapshot of what life in Moldova is like. So we're going to be speaking to Aliona later on in the show. But now it's time for... Who's had a good week, Katie? Uh, it's been a good week for the women of Germany because the government has just announced that there's going to be quotas for the number of women working in senior management in German companies. So if you are a company with a management board of three people or more, at least one of those people has to be a woman. Previously, there's been a kind of voluntary system in Germany. So the government has basically said to companies like, oh, you know, it'd be really nice if you had more women on your boards. Um, but that has not actually shamed companies into doing anything. 
And actually, the signs that the situation has got worse in Germany in recent years. Uh, there was a study done by the Albright Foundation, which is a German-Swedish nonprofit that campaigns a lot around this. And they found that the number of companies on the DAX, which is the German stock index, uh, they found that the number of those companies with no women on their boards has actually gone up from six last year to 11 this year, which isn't great. It's not great, but it is quite a small number of companies still. I suppose so, but that's the number with like zero as opposed to the number yeah, of that's true. companies with like one or two. <laughs> or 50%. 50% would be nice. Uh, but yeah, it's hoped that quotas might improve the situation. But, and I know you're going to say it, Dominic, surely these kind of quotas are like sexist. They're unfair to men and they're going to mean that poor overqualified men have to lose out because their jobs get given to women. Is that what you were going to say? Oh, you know me so well, Katie. <laughs> I do. Okay, fine. That probably isn't actually your opinion. But it would be interesting if it was. Maybe this podcast would be more interesting if that was my my opinion. We need to oh, disagree well. more often. Um, but let's just imagine for a second that you do think gender quotas are a bad idea because they might result in underqualified women unfairly taking the jobs of men. Um, I do think it is worth spending some time on picking the debate a bit because there are some business leaders in Germany and elsewhere who have complained about these policies and said, you know, we're not sexist. There just aren't enough qualified women coming forward for these jobs. And that's not our fault. I actually fell down a bit of an internet rabbit hole looking at what the impact of gender quotas has been uh, because Germany is far from the first country to introduce this kind of policy. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought Germany were a bit like behind the times with this. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to Germany, this is building on existing quotary kind of legislation, but they are definitely a little bit behind on this. Uh, Norway is really the pioneer on gender quotas. They introduced them back in 2008. And lots of other countries have followed, including France and Italy and Spain. Uh, some of the countries are stricter than others. So in some places, companies get fined if they don't comply. In other countries, you just get kind of publicly shamed about it. But the main thing that seems to emerge from research that's been done on this, and it's not very surprising, is that if you are trying to make your boardroom more equal in terms of gender, Quotas are by far the quickest and most effective way of doing that. There was a study done by City University London and the Montpellier Business School earlier this year, which looked at how quotas have worked in the UK, France and Italy. And it showed that pretty clearly. Now, whether or not having more women on the board makes your company more profitable or more successful, uh, that's more up for debate. There have been some studies done that have suggested that companies with more women on the board do get better financial results. But it's kind of hard to separate it out and say, this is definitely the thing that caused it. Also, not everything is about getting profits. Yeah, and that's definitely my own opinion. Um, even if there isn't concrete evidence that having women in leadership positions might make your company more profitable in a capitalist way. Firstly, for one thing, it's still going to give you a bigger diversity of viewpoints and make male business leaders think about things that they probably haven't thought of. Uh, but also, and it's probably obvious to say it, but representation is important in and of itself. Like if you put women in top jobs, it encourages girls to think this is something that I could do. This is a career that is open to people like me. And that is really important. Agreed. Just one final thing that I thought was quite interesting is that when researchers have gone and interviewed business leaders about all of this stuff, business leaders in countries that don't have these kind of quotas yet, they're the people that tend to be more hostile about the idea than countries that actually do have them. Um, so when you interview like 
corporate people in France and Norway, uh, they've actually been really positive about it and said like, you know what, I wasn't behind this idea at the beginning, but having more women at the top has actually given us more diverse ideas. And that's a really good thing. Cool. Who's had a bad week? It's been a bad week for some naughty Dutch hackers who have been breaking into places on the internet that they shouldn't have been. Let's first discuss the case of Daniel Ferlan, who's a reporter at the Dutch TV channel RTL, who saw a photo on Twitter of the Dutch defence minister about to start a video call with all the other defence ministers from the EU from her home. And in the photo, there were some papers on the table. When I said hacking earlier, maybe that was over-egging it a bit because all the reporter did was he zoomed into those pieces of paper in the photo and saw that listed there for all to see were the details of how to log in to the meeting. And according to Michiel van Holten, who's the Director of Transparency in the EU and claims to know about the situation, Daniel then contacted the Dutch Defence Ministry to alert them about the security breach. Oh, he did. He actually got in touch. Well, just according to this one guy who's quite an established guy, he tweeted about it, but it's not been backed up by Daniel himself yet. So apparently he contacted the defence ministry, but the defence ministry dismissed his concerns and said the pin code wasn't the only layer of security into the meeting anyway, so we're going to leave it up. Okay. Obviously, the reporter Daniel then got even more curious and thought, well, I'm going to give it a go to see whether I can get in. There was one number missing from the pin code uh, or obscured in the photo. So he had to try a few options out. But after not very many tries, he suddenly found himself in his office sitting at a video conference of all the EU defence ministers uh, in his black T-shirt, smiling and waving rather manically at Josep Borrell, the vice president of the EU commission. It's actually quite entertaining how it played out then. So shall we play a bit of the tape that RTL News posted? Yeah, let's do it. It's so funny. You know that you have been jumping into a secret conference of the NKUBD? Yeah, yes. I'm sorry. I'm a journalist from the Netherlands. Uh, but um, uh, uh, I'm sorry for interrupting your uh, your conference. So uh, I'll be leaving here. So uh, thank you. Uh... That's a criminal offense, huh? Yeah, I know. So uh, I'm go- I'm going to leave. <laughs> Goodbye. You better shut off quickly. Yeah. <laughs> before before the police arrive, huh? Bye bye. I love how he basically looks like he doesn't know what to do, and then because he doesn't know what to do, he just starts waving like a lunatic. Yeah. It's really nice. There's something really charming about the way he does it. I I think he didn't quite expect it to work. And Burrell kind of toes the line between being headmasterly and telling him off and telling him it's a criminal offence and also having a bit of a sense of humour about it quite well, I think. But obviously it was a break in and it showed that the security for the meeting wasn't very good and they had to cancel the meeting immediately. If Daniel logged in, anyone else could too. And it was actually really embarrassing for the Dutch defence minister, who then got a rather public ticking off from Prime Minister Rutte, who said later, ministers must realise how careful they have to be when posting on Twitter. Burn. You'd think she would have learned from all those British ministers over the last few years who've been caught with, like, transparent folders with documents in them that they may or may not want the newspapers to zoom in on. I think sometimes they've done it on purpose, but sometimes... Not so much on purpose. Yeah, people will never learn. Do you think Daniel's actually going to get into trouble over this? 
Well, maybe. A spokesman from the EU Foreign Affairs Department said such a breach is illegal and will be reported to the authorities. But I really doubt anyone would actually punish him. I mean, I think he can very easily argue that he was doing a public service and proving a security flaw behind a secretive meeting, especially if those reports that he tried to warn the Dutch ministry are indeed true. But even if he wasn't, I still think he's got a good case. Um, And he was only in the meeting for a few minutes. He made himself known like immediately. He didn't expose any secretive information. So maybe bad week shouldn't go to him as a naughty hacker, but to the Dutch defence minister. Um, Okay, so who's the other naughty Dutch hacker then? The other naughty Dutch hacker um, was actually someone who hacked someone a few weeks ago, but is being investigated by the Dutch Public Prosecution Service this week. You may have heard about this one. It was a Dutch hacker called Victor Gevers, who claims to have broken into Donald Trump's Twitter account. Mm. And just like the last story, it's not that he used some incredible technology or supercomputer. In fact, Gevers says that he doesn't even count this as hacking because all he did was tried out a few potential passwords, as he apparently regularly does with uh, politicians and he was successful i already know this but for the benefit of the listeners what was uh donald trump's supposed password it was maga 2020 exclamation mark <laughs> very imaginative and uh and actually this is the second time that uh Havers has claimed to hack into trump's twitter account the last time he did it i think it was back in 2016 and he says that trump's password was back then you're fired Quite ironic. <laughs> yeah, nowadays it's ironic, thankfully. So what does this guy actually do once he's logged into Trump's account then? Yeah, well, you might be a bit disappointed to hear that he actually doesn't do much. He's part of a group called the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure. And they say that they're there simply to expose digital vulnerabilities, not to prank anyone or steal private information. So boring. Uh, well, and very responsible. <laughs> Thank you for that disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> He claims that uh, before exposing the fact that he'd broken into the account, he actually first tried really hard to get in touch with the Trump team to tell them about the vulnerability because that is what he intends to do. But he wasn't able to, so he then decided to release it to the press. But there is a bit of a question about whether or not this is for real. And there's very little way to know. Twitter initially said that they'd not seen any evidence yet of the hack um, from their end but that was very early on and the White House denies it happened but then again the White House denies that Trump lost the election so I'm not going to take that very seriously. I mean has this guy actually produced any evidence that he did break in? Well he released a screenshot of what appeared to show him editing Trump's profile page but Mm. that screenshot can't be verified and he has shown a bit more data to a number of journalists, including the BBC, who said that they also couldn't quite confirm that it was legit. But there's clearly enough evidence uh, or enough belief in his claims, at least, for the Dutch prosecutors to look into the matter, apparently not prompted by any requests from uh, the American government. He was questioned by the high-tech crime team this week and he has refused to hand over the evidence that he's been showing to journalists um, because he doesn't think there is any allegation of wrongdoing and he doesn't know why he should 
have to put that evidence that could be used against him forward if he doesn't have to. Hmm. He also describes himself as an ethical hacker and despite claiming to have had access to Trump's direct messages, tweets he's bookmarked, potentially quite sensitive stuff, he hasn't released any of that information. So it's a complicated one. He's both being accused of having made up this hack and he's being potentially investigated by the police for what crime we don't quite know. Both are probably a bit uncomfortable things for him. So whether he's naughty or not so naughty, he gets bad week along with the other Dutch hacker. Kinda. Although it's not really a bad week for either of them, really. A gazillion people, it feels like, have signed up to help keep this podcast alive, basically, by chipping in a couple of dollars or euros or pounds a month on patreon.com so that we can pay for the disturbing amount of time and energy that goes into making this podcast. Uh, This week, we would like to thank Kate Johnson, Fraser Moore, Valerie Craig, Rochelle Weeder, Maria Feneridou, Eric Kisko, and Emma Linkleter. Yes, thank you all of you for joining. Um, It has really been a very heartening thing when these emails pop into our inbox telling us that we've got a new supporter. So if you'd like to give me and Katie a little boost of happiness in the middle of our weeks, uh, then please head to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. Let's go to Moldova, because there's some really interesting things afoot in this little country wedged between Ukraine and Romania. For a long time, the country has been very divided about its place in the world, I guess, Uh, whether they should stay close to Russia as a post-Soviet country or whether to move closer to the EU. It's kind of a similar push and pull that you see in a lot of countries on the eastern edge of Europe. But it looks like there's just been a pretty decisive step to move closer to the EU because Moldova has just elected a very pro-EU new president, Maya Sandu, kicking out Igor Dodon, who's very close to the Kremlin. Politics aside, though, Moldova is a fascinating uh, country with a lot of problems. It is, as Dominic said, the poorest country in Europe. It is also one of the world's fastest shrinking countries. For years, a huge number of Moldovans have headed abroad looking for work. By some estimates, it is a third of the population or more that now lives outside its borders. There's a few different reasons for that. The economy is broken. Corruption is a huge problem. So hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have left for elsewhere in Europe looking for work. And the money sent back to Moldova by those people in the diaspora, that contributes a crazy amount to Moldova's economy. It's about a quarter of the national GDP. Now, fixing the economy and trying to create more opportunities in Moldova is one of the issues that President Sandu will have on her to-do list when she takes office next month. But what we really wanted to do this week was try to understand what the human impact of this crazy situation is. Like, what does it actually feel like when all of your friends and your family feel like they have to leave the country? The person we wanted to talk to about this was Aliona Rotaru. We were put in touch by our friends at Are We Europe magazine. They actually interviewed Aliona about this a couple of years ago for a beautiful documentary project that they made about the shrinking of Moldova. And Aliona spoke really movingly in that documentary about what it was like to see both of her parents leave when she was a kid. They went to work in Italy, leaving the kids behind. And it's a really difficult thing to deal with. You'll hear from the interview just how hard it is to talk about all of this stuff. But it doesn't mean that the situation is hopeless. And we talked to Aliona about what her life is like, having decided to stay in Moldova and resist the pressure to leave. And we talked about her hopes for the future. (laughs) 
before we go into all the difficult stuff about living in Moldova, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about something uniquely nice or beautiful about living in Moldova that they might not know already. Moldova is a small country and we have like very nice neighborhood and very nice people with um, nice, um, you know, approach to life. We are like dreamers. Uh, here everything look, looks very bad, like we have a very ugly city, but we have people that really believe we, we can change this. When you come to visit Moldova, I recommend you to come uh, in, you know, the summertime and uh, around the National Wine Day, because we have great wine too. I hope you can give my contact and I can uh, do a list of to-do things in Moldova, because we have great things to see and uh, great wines to drink and great communities to meet and to, I don't know, to make friendships and also to inspire and to share knowledge uh, from one another. You had my attention at uh, National Wine Day, Aliona, so I will be coming. Don't you worry. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Something that I've struggled to get my head around is the sheer number of Moldovans who live outside the country. It seems to be about a third of the population, maybe more. Um, Can you explain what this this fact of life has meant for you and the people in your life? And I think both of your parents left when you were a kid to work in Italy. What, what was that like? Yeah, uh, so uh, everyone is uh, leaving this country since, you know, this is a new normality of Moldova since, uh, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years now. People are leaving the country and young people, my friends, left the country because they want to live in a country which has normal system, you know. I was surprised, uh, like, some days ago when a friend of mine that had a, a pretty nice life in Moldova left the country to, to do some job for a corporation outside Moldova. And he told me, Alina, I just want to live in a, in a system that works in a country that has a normal regulation, you know, like a health system that works a law system that works. And just, you know, to have this normality that we don't have in Moldova. I, I could not benefit of public system in Moldova for pretty much uh, all my life. Um, I, I had this, you know, like uh, fever. And, uh, and I call one uh, hospital and they say me, no, you have to go to another. I call another. They say me, no, you have to go to first. And then I call back to them and they say, no, you have to go to another. And I'm like explaining them, guys, I am paying you. I am paying for these services and I'm feeling bad. Please help me. This is a trigger, you know, always happens. So... uh, Well, we can can take a breath, but don't worry, it's not bad. Hey, this is Katie here, just uh, butting in from the future. As you can probably hear, Aliona got pretty emotional at this point. These things are incredibly hard for her to talk about. So we decided to move on and change the topic. So last week, Maya Sandu was elected as president of Moldova. Uh, she's the first female president of Moldova. She's pro-EU. She wants to fight corruption in the country. Looking at this from the EU's perspective, her victory is being celebrated and in a lot of the Western media as well. Do you think she has a chance at actually making life better for people like you in Moldova? You no, know, president in Moldova doesn't have much power. 
It's just a figure that uh, is representing the country and is, um, you know, making friendships with other countries. What's important is that we as a nation, we, everyone in Moldova and especially abroad in diaspora, everyone just uh, went to elect a president they wanted to elect and their vote counted. Most of people did not um, necessarily vote for her, you know, political direction. But it was just uh, anti-vote for the actual president, which is a corrupt liar and altogether not professional. If you could hear his speeches in the last two weeks, telling uh, stories that you cannot vote for a woman which is not married, and especially because she doesn't have kids. He was speaking very bad about women, addressing to her as a woman that she cannot lead and she cannot uh, do anything positive and she is pro-gay community and she is pro-other minorities. Uh, And now every woman in Moldova will uh, be more confident that we can succeed. Also, if not to think about her as a woman, she's a great specialist. Uh, She has a good education. She just wants this country to uh, have a decent life with no corruption. And uh, yeah, we we very much believe that things are changing. Um, I don't want to make you cry again with this question, so I hope I won't. But um, (laughs) do you think she might be able to help create an environment where more young people might consider staying and working in Moldova or is that just is it too late for that I don't know (laughs) probably for people like the age of my parents it's pretty difficult to bring them back to survive in here the only um, solution is for me to create an activity which is sustainable and to hire them because otherwise I don't know who will hire them but um, my friends which are abroad They're having their lives there. I don't know if they will come back. We're really grateful to Aliona for speaking to us today, even though it's very emotional for her to discuss some of these issues. We discovered Aliona because our friends at Our Europe created this beautiful interactive long-form online project that Katie mentioned before. It's called Drums of Democracy and they looked at the state of democracy in Moldova. It was over a year ago now, so before this election happened, but it's still really worth looking at. Aliona is one of a handful of Moldovans that they feature with videos and interviews. And we'll put a link in our show notes because it's a beautifully produced piece of journalism. What have you been watching this week? I know what you've been watching this week, actually. <laughs> yeah, I've been watching The Crown. Haven't we all? Let's talk about it. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I'm only at episode four and I won't give any spoilers away, although everyone knows what happens with history. Although that's the clever thing about the show. You always realize that there are things you didn't know about the history or I do anyway. And that's part of what's so fascinating about it. But I have mixed feelings. I think it's, as always, very polished and like luxurious TV and kind of relatively entertaining to see these characters come to life in fantasy conversations. 
but I've actually felt really sad, like unbearably sad watching the episodes about Diana. It is really sad, isn't it? I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, and I think Emma Corrin, who plays Diana, is really good. Mm. The thing I find a bit weird about it is knowing that some of it has been made up for dramatization but not knowing which bits. And that's especially weird because, like, a lot of these people involved in the story are still alive. Yeah, it does get weirder as it gets closer to the present day. I mean, obviously, Shakespeare wrote amazing plays about kings and queens of England with made-up conversations, and we don't question that. But this feels a bit different, doesn't it? A little bit. I think it's because it's so good. Like, if it was, like, a sort of rubbishy TV show and very sensationalist stuff about, like, Harry and Meghan, we'd just be like, ah, it's rubbish. But this is, like, really really good television that looks really beautiful and expensive and like the acting's really good so yeah that kind of makes it weirder but I am still really enjoying it I have to confess it's getting quite a bit of criticism for painting Maggie Thatcher as like not as problematic as she was oh really I'm only a couple of episodes in and I thought she seemed quite problematic (laughs) people are like referring to her as like sexy Maggie oh well that's just Gillian Anderson being Gillian Anderson I'm not quite sure about uh, lots of people were saying this is a fantastic embodiment of the character but it it feels a bit overdrawn to me at some points it's a bit over the top I do think it's a virtually impossible task to play Margaret Thatcher on screen because she was such a larger than life and caricature character already it's like someone playing Donald Trump on SNL it's not ever that funny um, because yeah the caricature itself was already extreme I feel like her performance is a theatrical performance if we saw it on stage it would be really convincing but there's something about it being on screen and close up that just doesn't quite work yeah bit much but I did actually do something else I left the house and saw a real play in real life that I wanted to mention very briefly wow cool yeah theatres and museums have been opened up again for up to 30 people since last week here in the Netherlands and I attended this amazing and petrifying sound installation that has been touring the world a bit it's from Domar Warehouse uh, in London and it's based on the dystopian pandemic novel Blindness by Portuguese writer Jose Saramago and it's voiced by Juliet Stevenson and it's kind of like a really posh podcast performance because everyone was seated with headphones on and it was also kind of like ASMR horror and for a lot of the performance you're sitting in complete pitch black darkness which was truly terrifying and I'm still not sure if I enjoyed it but it was definitely a different kind of experience and let's be honest anything that gets me out of the house and away from watching more Netflix of an evening is a good thing. Well you've also got your running shoes now so a few options. Absolutely to run away from the horrors of this terrifying stagey podcast. Anyway it's been shown in London and New York already and I imagine it will be continue traveling because it's so adaptable and so corona proof. Look out for it wherever you live and if not go read the book Saramago won a Nobel Prize for Literature soon after publishing it so I imagine the book is pretty great as well. Nice. What else did you watch? Um, I also watched a beautiful film on the Guardian website a 25 minute documentary called Colette which is about a 90 year old former French resistance member Her brother died in the Nordhausen concentration camp during the war. And she always refused to go to Germany, Colette. She always just said she'd never set foot there. And the film is about her finally agreeing to go and going to visit Nordhausen with a young researcher. And it's just, I was just totally floored by this film. I just like sat there sobbing 
It is incredibly moving and sad. It's devastating, in fact. But it's also a really good portrait of someone trying to come to terms with history and all of the complicated emotions that come with that. And I think it's also, if you'll excuse me, getting a bit sentimental for a moment. Um, it's a really good reminder of why we have the EU. Uh, Lucy, this young researcher who goes with her, she's really young. I think she's in her early 20s or maybe even younger. And watching it, you're just really hit by the like really different experience of Europe that these two women have. One of them has grown up in a Europe where you know, we think nothing of crossing borders and being friends with people from this country or that country. And that's just because of the time that she happened to be born. Um, anyway, I thought it was just like a really beautiful film. It's called Colette. It is on the Guardian website and I will post the link in the show notes. Sounds great. I'm going to check it out. This week's happy ending was sent to me by one Katie Lee from South End in Essex. <laughs> I know what this is. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the story of a group of women in Croatia who are working hard to keep a beloved traditional handicraft from dying out. The product they are knitting by hand in rural Croatia is the nakumjak, which is essentially a woolen codpiece. Yes, a knitted warming sock type thing to keep a man's private parts warm in the freezing winters in Croatia. I don't know why I'm so amused by this. I mean, I do know, but like, it's so juvenile, but it makes me really happy, the story. Yeah, Katie's colleagues at AFP have made a very nice video interviewing some of these women who are keeping the tradition alive. And you may be asking, why do women need to knit protective covers for men's penises? And that is a very good question. Underwear does seem like a better solution. And I imagine that wool might be a bit scratchy. Mm. But it seems like they are mainly being bought by tourists who think they are funny and a good Christmas gift. One of the women interviewed said... When we show tourists the nakonyak, it of course sparks laughter, a lot of positive energy, good vibrations, jokes. <laughs> and there's quite a sweet bit in the video when some of the older women are bemoaning the fact that the tradition will probably die with them because for some reason, younger women don't seem to be choosing to spend their spare time knitting woolen protectors for penises. <laughs> I wonder why. I think this is something that could come back. Like, internationally, I can imagine it being sold on a website like Etsy. Mm, I bet they're on Etsy. Should I just have a quick Google? Yeah. Oh, no results for Nakornyak yet. Sad. Someone make it happen. I want to buy one for Dominic. Stop it. Uh. I'm going out for my government-mandated daily walk now. I'm quite excited, actually, because my mother-in-law has made me a new mask and it's the first one I've had that actually fits snugly enough to not fog up my glasses. It's a game changer. Oh, that's amazing, because apparently if they fog up your glasses, then they're not working. Oh, <laughs> sorry, well. Mine always fog up my glasses, too. It's really hard as a glasses wearer. So thank you very much, Joe, for my lovely new mask. Can Joe make me one? <laughs> she might do, along with the penis warmer. <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> We will be back next week on Wednesday as always. If you can't get enough of us between podcasts, you can find us on the internet. Uh, for example, if you'd like to see a stupid video of us playing with Dominic's new lamp, you can check out our Instagram at Europeans Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Europeans Pod and on Facebook. If you just type in the Europeans Podcast, you will find us. Thank you everyone for listening. 
See you next week. La revedere!